0: You are listening to the Healthcare Alignment Podcast. Each episode features interviews with industry experts on what makes our healthcare system tick, and at times, what makes it not tick so well. Listen in now to learn what healthcare organizations and industry leaders are doing to align this complex industry.
1: Today, I am very excited uh, about the panel that we have. Uh, and our guests and and as much as i'm excited about the the topic um that probably doesn't explain the half of it um but today uh we're going to be talking about fair market value the 2020 stark final rule um and just going through uh and having a conversation Uh, with a couple of experts uh, on this. So my name is Alex Kraus. I'm Associate General Counsel with Parkview Health. I'll be acting uh, as a moderator in part today uh, for both of our guests, Lisa and Tim. Um, But but first, before we dive in, um, I want to make sure our guests have an opportunity to introduce themselves. Uh, I'll kick it over to Lisa first.
0: Alex, Um, i'm lisa wilson i'm a senior technical advisor at the centers for medicare and medicaid services my primary role at the agency is within the center for medicare and i focus almost exclusively on physician self-referral law policy so i work on the regulation development um, all of the other things we do related to that policy advisory opinions other types of guidance Um, and i was one of the principal drafters of our 2020 final rule that uh, we've referenced here on the slide is the stark final rule. But at CMS, we call that the MCR rule. It was our modernization and clarification rule. So if you hear me say that, that is a little bit of internal jargon. Um, but that's what I've been doing. I've been back at the agency for 10 years now and had a four, almost four-year there back in uh, right after the MMA was out and started to be implemented. So from phase three on, I have had a Pretty significant role in the drafting of our regulations and the creation of the physician self referral law policy. So I will turn it over to Tim.
2: Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, my name is Tim Smith. I'm the principal with TS Healthcare Consulting. Uh, I primarily do valuation, but I do other types of consulting work. I've been in the healthcare industry about 30 years now. I spent 14 years at HCA doing physician deals and doing compliance. Uh, I've been reading the Stark Regs and living with the Stark Regs for quite a long time. Uh, The other, my other claim to fame will be that I made Lisa's job a lot harder because my colleague and uh, Mark Dietrich and I gave her a lot of things to read during the public comment process. Uh, But I'm glad to be here today.
1: All right. Well, thank you both. And Lisa, thank you for the MCR. Uh, I've written that down and uh, we'll make sure to clarify that as needed with the audience. All right, so this is really, you know, and for our guests, this is really meant to be a conversation amongst the three of us. Um, So I did want to spend a minute just giving everybody kind of the the flow of this. The idea behind um, this presentation is really going to be focusing on uh, a couple of broad topics uh, within, the uh, MCR or uh, the uh, final rule of 2020, Um, but we're also going to dive deep into some specific issues. And uh, we're really happy to have both uh, guests here today because I think both of their expertise is uh, well known in the industry and uh, excited for this conversation. Um, So starting out in Maybe, you know, Lisa, just kind of starting with you. So just as a basis for uh these final regulations, but but maybe more broadly, and maybe this is just kind of your thoughts on it, or just how you know the government kind of views it, but um a lot of discussion within the final regulations happens within the commentary. And I just didn't know if you could shed any light or perspective on how individuals, whether it's Tim or myself or others, um, should view the regs versus commentary and how they work together, just more broadly?
0: Sure, Uh, well, I always think it's important that you start certainly with the, the reg text is critical, that is the law, but the commentary is where the agency has its opportunity to share insight into its thinking, insight as to how it views those regulations and what they mean, and sometimes really just respond to questions that maybe ultimately don't result in any kind of change to the regulation text or anything that you'll see if you only looked at the regulations, but so much valuable information is in the preamble and that commentary because we do answer people's questions. It's an opportunity for notice and comment rulemaking publicly available information for everyone to go back to and reference. And I would say you would be remiss if you didn't spend quite a bit of time reading all of the preamble and the commentary anytime you want to look at a regulation to see what what the government thinks it means. But really anytime you just want to talk about a particular topic, there's just a lot of little nuggets of important information in those preambles. And this one, as you note, has a lot of information on this topic and, and the other two of the big three, which we called um afterwards, based on one of the commenters to the RFI said, the concepts of commercial reasonableness and the volume and value standards. So, this was really our first opportunity to modernize this area of our regulations, and that's why we spent a good amount of time, and as you said, words, trying to bring people up to speed, things we've been hearing for years, and also, you know, give some thoughts and a, some transparency to what the agency thinks about fair market value.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. And, and I mean, so speaking a little bit more towards spending the time, and some of this may be kind of, you know, intertwined. I mean, what were some of the reasons of just needing to spend so much time providing commentary maybe specifically on fair market value it, you know just thinking about the other phases cuz i have and i don't have it here which i should have and tim you've seen it my word like chart do you remember that yes
2: yes i do yeah. yes so i, yeah, I, it, was I a lot, uh, it was a big you had a big bar chart that showed that i think even the three of them combined phase 1 phase 2 phase 3 from the 2000s had only a fraction of the wording of the uh, final racks.
1: Yes, yes. And I did not count them one by one, Lisa, but I did turn it into a Word document and had uh, <laughs> th- that that count the words for me. But I mean, seriously, so just thinking about phase one, two, and three, thoughts on, you, you mentioned the big three, but why uh, a lot more focus on fair market value? Was there just a lot of questions on it or did the agency feel there needed to be a lot of clarification
0: on? I think a little of both. So you may recall the regulatory sprint is kind of where the original request for information came from, and we took the opportunity. um, At that point, we were asking questions about the transition to value-based care away from a volume-based system. system. We said, you know, anything else you want to hear about? Because for years, people have been asking, the agency to explain its interpretation of the volume of value standard. And there hadn't been a good opportunity to do so. But when we did the RFI, we got a lot of good information about fair market value and why some of the prior commentary, which, as you noted, was not that extensive, and I don't want to call it throwaway commentary, it certainly wasn't, but like a sentence that you might find that to the agency was just a different way to say something actually ended up having a lot of meaning in the industry and maybe was not representative of of what we were thinking. We certainly weren't trying to change the way the valuation community does its job and handles itself and values assets or services. And through the years, we'd hear, well, you you said this sentence in this particular rule, phase one or phase two, and, and really that's so hard to live with because people are now asking us to do X, Y, or Z. And those are things that maybe we just didn't understand and didn't certainly mean those kinds of things. So this was the first opportunity in a refresh of our regulations. That's why we call it the modernization and clarification rule um, to address the, the key terminology that you find in so many of the exceptions to the physician self-referral law that is so critical and having a better understanding of the agency's thinking and the lack of thinking in some areas, as the case may be, you know, where words didn't really mean what people thought they meant, the opportunity to clarify that and become more transparent on this topic and all three of the the big three topics in the key terminology. That was why we spent that much more time. And over the years, we've been hearing questions. We'd seen a lot in litigation with our law enforcement partners. We We were aware that the industry believed that the agency thought things that maybe it didn't and thought that things we had said meant something that we didn't intend for them to mean. So we thought it was a good opportunity to learn from the industry and the regulated community to get a little more information for ourselves and try to reestablish a set of rules that would provide a better framework for everyone to do their job, because it's not our job to do fair market valuations. That is not what we, Are capable of doing. It is not what we're qualified to do, and in fact, we are prohibited in the statute from doing that. So that's sort of why you saw so much more. It was a culmination of years and years of those things.
1: So it's so it's uh, in in other words, maybe CMS is not in the fair market value business. Is that is that
0: fair? To sum it up in one sentence, that is very true.
1: (laughs) Got it. Got it. Well, okay. So I've got Lisa, your perspective, Tim. You were a major commenter on this rule, providing a lot of industry thought leadership. I guess knowing maybe Lisa's perspective on you know CMS's need to clarify this and things being taken different ways, just from your experience over, you know, phase one, two, three, um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you needed were you an industry participant that was like yes we we need clarification
2: oh yes yes in fact this was a i I think uh, a key point of both mark dietrich and i and our feedback and uh, of what we gave to cms in the public uh, comment process we briefed them at length Um, if you go look at the public record there's some rather lengthy documents where we went through for CMS, how the industry had been interpreting various things that they had said—everything um, from the, you know, the proposed and then removed safe harbor uh, method for an hourly rate, how people had interpreted that to mean certain things, how certain phrases about using survey data had meant certain things, uh, and so forth—and that was that was one of the main things we said in our public comments was, "Hey, look, we need you to clarify." What are, you, what are you doing here? What's the approach? Because the industry really does think when it comes to compensation valuation, maybe not so much the other valuation areas such as real estate or business valuation. But in this area, um, everyone is looking to you to tell us how to do the work. That's the orientation of the industry. And so, um, you know, this was a great clarification. And I think it's abundantly clear if you take the time to read the the preamble commentary um, that CMS is saying, yes, um, we're not in the the FMV business. Um, And I know a lot of commenters hit CMS with all kinds of questions about how do you do this? How do you do that? What's the impact of this factor, that factor, this other factor? Um, And, you know, the response has been, here's the definition and here's some guidance definitionally. But, you know, that's not what we do. So I think that message came through loud and clear, so to speak.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no. No, certainly. I mean, and and maybe that gets us a little bit of um, this final kind of quote here, not to kind of harp on it, but it is interesting, Tim, that you make the distinction of other valuation areas. And I don't know, Lisa, if you've thought about this before, but maybe this is actually, this is the first time I'm kind of thinking about it, but it is, interesting to note that when it comes to other types of valuation such as you know real estate that i would imagine the requests or questions around that are probably less because the industry has industry standards for figuring out rental payments and everything else but on the comp end, as Tim notes, it's kind of like, well, people were looking to CMS. I don't know. Had you ever thought
0: about that before? No, actually, from my personal perspective, I hadn't really um, realized how, how strong the need was for this kind of guidance. I thought that it was best, you know, to let the industry run itself and do what it does and I think that's this quote that you have up on this slide that and We said this and we mean it that we see no indication in the legislative history or the statutory language itself that Congress was intending and now I'm going to stop quoting intending to mess around in, in the valuation industry and Dictate to the valuation industry how to run itself how to do its job. I think the statutory definition of fair market value had to be there if you're going to use a term that says compensation has to be fair market value or rental charges must be consistent with fair market value then you need to explain what you mean by fair market value and then that statutory definition goes on further to say comma consistent with the general market value and i think that's the part that was consistent with what you do and the general market value I think CMS took the position is what you do, you evaluators, that's what you do. You figure out the general market value, but we need a definition in the statute. We need a regulatory definition. So let us give you a framework and then you go do, you be you, you do you and do what you do because that is not what CMS does. And I do think that is what the statute is about, that it was not trying to upend the valuation community. And then to Tim's point earlier, We apparently did upend the valuation community a little bit and we did hear that in the comments that hey you said x and that's not how we do it and when we look back at those words we think well did we is that a thing we didn't mean to do that so i think this this is very true that this is we need some structure in the statute we need a little bit of a framework here but really in actually developing that value that's what you all need to figure out
2: yeah yeah on that, on that point, Lisa, I guess one clarification is you talk about the valuation community, but the agency doesn't require you. I mean, you stated this clearly in the regulations that, in, that, a, that a professional evaluator like me or an outside valuator be engaged to do the FMV analysis. That's something that you think can be done internally as well as by professional evaluators. Is that, would that be fair based upon what you stated in the regs or the preamble? That is right. Excuse me.
0: Yep, that's that's absolutely right. When I say valuation community, please take that, especially for purposes of this call, <coughs> excuse me, as the broad group of people valuing the arrangements that they are entering into and the services that they are getting, the items they're purchasing, the real estate or equipment that they are leasing, and that could be internal. And I think we have said before that, when we've used this term, and maybe it was an unfortunate choice, any commercially reasonable method of valuing is okay with us. And by that, we mean whatever is appropriate for that transaction and if you have developed an internal methodology for valuing um, service arrangements for example or you go back to you know current rental rates that are being charged somewhere there are lots of different ways to value we do not require an individual valuation for every arrangement we just require that ultimately the number that result that the compensation ends up being is fair market value in accordance with the definitions that we have, and, and that includes the, the concept of general market value.
1: Yeah, and, and I... I well, uh, go, ahead. go ahead, Alex.
2: Well, okay, well, yeah, A couple follow-ups, because I think it this will set up some other topics, Alex, if we could, is just with Lisa, is, um, yeah, I think that's important. It's about the work itself. It's not about who does it. Is, would that be a fair way to say it, Lisa? In terms yeah. of fair market value? Yeah. I will say you clarified so much in this, and I, I want to point a few of these statements out where you talked about uh, how in the past many had interpreted CMS as favoring one approach to value over another. I think you said, you know, we weren't trying to promote the market approach, other, other approaches, or we weren't trying to prescribe methods. And you reaffirmed the any commercially reasonable method standard. Um, but it, it you know, it sounds the message is very clear. You're CMS is what I would call methodologically neutral with regard to how people do the work. Uh, they're supposed to follow concepts and principles of the valuation community based upon the subject transaction, based upon the definition of value, and we're supposed to go forward and do our thing uh, in the industry. Is that is that a fair, another way to characterize it, Lisa?
0: Yes, I think that is fair. I think we tried to give the guidance, you know, certain things that are that are just, true principles no matter what, including, you know, um, you really, we're going to go through some of them, I know, coming up, and we'll get to them one by one, but this idea of fire of neutrality, this idea of using comparables that are appropriate, that don't create program integrity risk for the Medicare program and its patients, there are some principles that we set forth that are important to us, and that we believe you have to follow in order to ultimately end up with a fair market value for the services or the items or the rental charges but we are not dictating how to do your job right
2: i think this is really important because it puts it puts stark fmv on a lot of common footing with other unique regulatory legal definitions of value that valuators have to deal with in other contexts where we take that unique definition and we then apply our toolbox to it um, to come up with a value consistent with that definition, but but we don't have the agents, various government agencies, telling us necessarily how to do the work. And I think that's really important. The other important part of this, I think, is this creates a level playing field, in my mind at least, in terms of how enforcement goes forward, because we have the the, the agency that uh, deals with the definitions and the regul the regulation text uh, that that is definitional in nature, meaning the definition of FMV and G, uh, a general market value. And then everyone, in, in my mind at least, needs to play by the, the, that same set of rules of here's the definition, here are the concepts and principles of the valuation community, and applying them accordingly. Um, and it, for me, what I like about where we're at today is we're not looking to the government to tell us how to do FMV. We should be looking to the valuation body of knowledge to tell us how to do this. And everybody needs to play by those rules. Whether it's the relators uh, who file the, you know, the whistleblower cases, DOJ, everybody across the board uh, has a kind of an, you know, we're we're all playing by the same set of rules. And I think that's really important as a, uh, and this is public policy, but I think it's very important to have that kind of uh, uh, level playing field. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think certainly as we get into you know we i i know Lisa you kind of mentioned framework and at least it's kind of okay we know the the government cannot you know um prescribe how fair market value is assessed and all of that but we we have noted maybe some of this framework and guardrails uh that because of the statute uh, that the government, you know, has kind of created here. So I know you mentioned uh, one here, and I know when we were talking about this, uh, we kind of joked around that you felt that it was interesting that, you know, we had created like terminology for the different concepts. Um, but maybe, Lisa, this is a good thing because it's it's the industry at work of trying to sort all of this out. So maybe maybe that's a positive. Um that we've at least started doing that.
0: Absolutely, I think we'll probably adopt your terminology when we start talking about these principles as well, so.
1: (laughs) Well, good, good, yes, yes, of course. So, okay, so the first maybe framework uh, safeguards, you know, however we wanna position this, we talk about precluded reliance. So I'm not gonna read all of this, But um, at least the final portion here where CMS has stated that essentially um, relying on um, comparables that are not distorted by parties that are in a position to refer to one another is an important, you know, program integrity safeguards. So I left that that last piece off, but um, what are your kind of general thoughts on this? You know, is this, where are you at with this?
0: Right, so I went back and I, I reread the commentary to see the context for this. And I remembered after reading that about the mistakes we made with some of our proposals, they were a little off target. But one of them related to this, and one of the commenters was talking about the way we may have proposed to define general market value or or all of the regulations related in this area may have resulted in people just having a very subjective opinion and saying, well, this is fair market value, and it would have fit the regulatory definitions as proposed. Obviously, that wasn't what we intended, and this language related to that, and this is old. Um, An old concept, obviously, from phase two, that basically putting it in another way, if if you're going to talk about baking, let's say, if you use bad ingredients or even cooking, if you use bad ingredients, you're going to get a bad product at the end. You're not going to like your dinner and you're not going to like that cake. And so this is that idea that if your comps are just full of other transactions where the parties are in a position to refer to each other, you may end up with a distorted Valuation at the end, and we perhaps will not accept that, it may also tie back into the concept of the volume and value standard in a bit you if you're only using comps that have parties who are making referrals to each other and that's where you're getting the idea of what they should be paid, that creates a program integrity problem. We have serious program integrity concerns when any of the big three are at issue, whether there's a volume and value. Uh, problem, whether it's a commercial reasonless problem or whether we end up with not fair market value. And I think this is a reflection of if you are if you have bad input, then you may end up with a bad outcome. And we see the connection here too. I personally see the connection a bit to um, the general program integrity concern related to when you are looking at or taking into account the volume of value referral. So I think that's what this is really, About If you go back and look at it in the context of the comment that came in, it was a comment on a proposal we didn't finalize.
1: Got it.
2: Got it. Tim, thoughts on this? Sure. Yeah. You know, Lisa, this is something that for me, it was interesting because you're right. This was in it started in phase one. It was in phase two. This what we're calling precluded reliance. It had it was worded a little differently then, but it was basically this idea of you shouldn't be relying on market data from parties who have other business or referral relationships as the sole basis for determining f and um, Is that correct? Is that a fair uh, interpretation of it? Yes. Mm-hmm. People are not aware of this. If I told you stories, Lisa, of even lawyers talking about, oh, you can use whatever data you want. There's no issue. Um, it, it's something that a lot of people don't, for some reason doesn't register with a lot of people. So, I'd like to, if I could tarry on a little bit with you, just get your reaction, but I I would like to start out with clarifying a couple of things. And the first question would be, is this a concept that applies to all data? It doesn't matter if it's real estate data, comp data, business transaction data, this is a kind of universal principle uh, across the board.
0: I believe that's right. I don't think we specifically said that in the preamble, but it was a general discussion at that point. We weren't talking only about physician comp for services or rental charges or one of the areas or purchasing an item. So um, anytime we have statements to this effect that are bringing back other statements or reiterating policies we set forth in prior rules, they're usually general in nature. And we try to be specific um, when we were being specific. But again, if you remember the big overarching concept, we are trying to stay out of the business of telling you how to do that. So these are general principles from us and and going from there, yes. I think the answer to your question is this is a general concept of program integrity.
2: Now, is it an outright, you know, absolute exclusionary rule or is it rather if you've got this data, well, you can't solely rely on it, but if you do other analyses, assessments, other work, you do other approaches to value, and you find out that your data set from parties with other relationships is pretty consistent with what your other analyses are telling you, could you then reference it and include it, or is this an absolute kind of prohibition? Um,
0: I think that that's probably a little more overstepping than I want to do from a CMS and a government perspective, but from a personal perspective, I think that is an appropriate analysis there. This is just saying that, You you shouldn't be relying only on this data that is, say, for example, and and I'm probably going to butcher this because I'm not in the valuation industry, and this will tell you why we stay out of it all. You have a survey, a salary survey that you're looking at, and the only data inputs in that salary survey are from hospitals that employ physicians. You've got nothing else out there. But what you just said is you then went and looked at all these other things, too, to figure out what the appropriate valuation for this particular service arrangement is. I don't think you, if you end up in the same place, I don't think you are relying on a survey with comparables that, you know, involve parties who are in a position to refer or generate business for each other. I think, don't forget what the word reliance means. You're not relying just on that. You are doing Mm -hmm. something else Mm -hmm. to figure out the appropriate valuation and you're relying on the totality of what you've done. And I think that's a very important concept. So I would agree with what you Uh, said about if you support the valuation by other means, then you certainly, doesn't seem to me that you have solely relied on those comparables that have entities with physicians who are in a position to refer or generate business.
2: Very good. And that, just to be clear too, this general principle would apply to survey data
0: as
2: as well as any other kind of data.
0: Of course, yes. I was just giving an example. (laughs)
2: Sure, sure. No, that, well, that's a a lot of people over the years have said, well, CMS talks about surveys very favorable over here. So therefore, this rule is not applicable to surveys. And and so part of me asking that is just to kind of clarify that, again, this is a general concept that applies across the board. Surveys don't get a special exemption from it. Correct. Correct.
1: Correct. Okay. And I I do want to, oh, go ahead, Lisa, please. Oh no, that I I was just going to say I mean I, this is Alex. Uh I I think it is cuz to me I think even Lisa where you started you know with this concept I like your baking example. <laughs> it's kind of like you know, hey, if if you are using uh distorted uh, ingredients, you know, the Italian seasoning is not actually Italian seasoning it's going to be problematic. And so, um, I, 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 and and I get the concept of it being broad because it's like, well, you know, yeah, there's all sorts of different types of, I mean, we think about Stark. I mean, how many exceptions are there? You know, there's all sorts of different types of valuations. So I, I can see, you know, I think it's a good example. Anyway, Tim, were you anything else on this? Well, just some, some feedback, and, and I gave,
2: you know, CMS this feedback in the public comment uh, process, but I don't think this is CMS telling valuators how to do their work, per se. I see this as a logical extension of the definition of fair market value and, you know, general market value taken together because a, a key characteristic of the parties who are well-informed is also that they not be in a position to generate business for each other. Those, are the, those two things are two key aspects of the buyer and seller that we use as the standard for what we're doing. Well, if that's the standard, it's simply logical then to say, look, you, you shouldn't be relying on data from parties who have other business between you. That's just a logical extension of the definition. That's not methodological guidance as such. And the other thing I've, I've, I've said to CMS in the, in the, and I've said in the industry for years now the valuation community already does this. And the example is over an intellectual uh, property licensing. There's a whole lot of data in the public data sources for IP licensing agreements that is between related parties. It's it's uh, you know essentially intercompany or affiliated company transfer pricing. And so the valuation community has come up with this idea of cuts, which is comparable uncontrolled transactions, which is that's the transactions for the independent parties. It doesn't involve all this intercompany business. And they, you know, people will say when you're doing things like fair market value and other types of definitions of value, you should be using that, not the other data. So there's an analog for what CMS said in the valuation community on its own already. So I always I've always seen this as a logical extension of the definition, not methodology guidance as such. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's where we kind of get back to you know however we want to refer to it of kind of framework you know i mean it's it's a framework um uh that we're kind of working through so because i know we've got other topics here um buyer neutrality lisa this is another one that you had mentioned um earlier and once again i won't necessarily go all the way into this but i think on one hand uh, the clarity. And so I think your team absolutely hit a, a home run with broadly with this final rule of of really creating clarity. And um, I, I do think really helping the industry, you know, be able to move, move. Um, but this was one concept where I felt there was a lot of clarity, you know, like there was like, oh, the, you know, some, whoever wrote this is being very, very clear this time, and I'll just kind of, uh, you know, highlight the, the applicable portion, but uh, we've labeled it bioneutrality. Uh, essentially, compensation shouldn't be inflated or reduced because you have parties that may refer or have other business, but then CMS goes on to say, this means that a hospital may not value a physician's services at a higher rate than a private equity investor or another physician practice simply because the hospital could bill for DHS referred by the physician. Put another way, the value of a physician's services should be the same regardless of the identity of the purchaser. So I know we've kind of covered um, CMS, you know, certainly not being in the business evaluation, um, but What were the thoughts around the framework for buyer neutrality?
0: So let me say this another way, what's on this slide and and that quote. If a physician comes and does their work, and I am a physician practice that employs them, and I have to bill under the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, and I am going to receive X dollars in compensation when I bill all of those work RVUs, or, or all the RVUs, I guess versus a hospital that's going to bill just the professional component under the fee schedule, but also the facility fee under OPPS potentially, or IPPS if if that's where the case is. And I can't, there is, the concept here is that the physician did the same thing. And the fact that it means more to me because I operate under a better billing system or a more lucrative billing system, and, and you can do this whether it's OPPS, government rates, or whether you're talking about commercial payers too. It, it doesn't really matter. The concept being, it can't mean more to me because I get more money when I bill for your services than it should to the practice or the private equity investor who purchased the practice and then you're gonna bill under the fee schedule. And that's really what we're talking about here. In law enforcement uh, interactions and, and in cases that we had seen, we saw a number of folks saying, well, this is fair market value because, I don't know how else to say it. Because we're covering our costs because we earn more money. And so we can pay more because we earn more. That to us didn't seem like an appropriate valuation principle. <laughs> that to us didn't seem like something we should put in the framework here. That what we're valuing is what the physician is doing, not what you can ultimately turn around and mark up and build to the payer. So that's really what this is. The buyer neutrality is it shouldn't matter who you are, buyer. You're supposed to be valuing what the physician is doing. This is a service valuation, not what's going to happen after I have that service. And that's really where that was coming from. And we got a lot of questions inside and outside of this rulemaking process about that. That isn't it okay to pay more if I earn more ultimately when I turn around and build those services to the payer? And that, that to us did not seem like a, a good program integrity requirement to say, sure, go ahead. So this is really to say, look, we think valuation is about what you're valuing, not what it means to you later.
1: Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, thoughts on this? Yeah, just
2: a clarification. Uh, Lisa, when you talk about you earn more, I I gather you're talking about someone being able to bill under the the two different schedules, right? Um, uh, You're talking about earning more, via referrals that would be paid under, O oh, the outpatient perspective payment system, as opposed to, let's say you had three physician practices, five PE practices, and some hospital practices in a market, and they all have different, they've negotiated either worse or better payer rates with, let's say, Aetna United or someone like that. Are you referring to that situation, or are you talking about being able to bill under different fee schedules?
0: I think it's both. The example we gave in the preamble was, of course, the fee schedule versus OPPS, but again, what we're trying the concept here in the framework that we were setting out was you're supposed to be looking at what this person is doing, what is the value of that service. And yes, of course, you know let' us let's step out of the physician's over for world for a minute and say you're buying a house. It's going to mean it's going to have different value to different buyers because of whatever their personal needs are at the time. You need to be in a good school system you need to be close to public transportation whatever that is of course the buyer has some personal connection to that and so the value might seem different they put in different bids because of what their needs are but here we are talking about protecting the medicare program and its beneficiaries and creating a framework to to develop so that you all can develop fair market value in a way that is consistent with the exceptions that the congress set forth and that we have developed and that are intended to protect the program and its beneficiaries. So it's really, to us, it was, if this is what I'm looking at, and you can't see me because I'm talking with my hands, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm looking at the physician who is performing an hour of service. And what is that physician's value? What is that service worth? What is that hour worth as opposed to, in the example of OPPS, I'm going to get a facility fee and I, I, the hospital, if I employ that physician and I have them work in an outpatient department, I, the hospital, might get a thousand dollars for that reimbursement for those particular services overall, including his reassigned professional fees that I'm going to bill to, versus a physician practice that, you know, bills under the fee schedule for the entire PCTC combo under the fee schedule they're going to get a lot less than that thousand dollars that's one perfect example but it's not the extent of the policy it's not just about the federal payer system this is about truly more buyer neutrality is that concept is it's the value of the services should be the same regardless of who's paying for those services who who the entity is in terms of physician self referral world entity paying for those services
1: yeah well, and there's there's one, and I think we talked about this before, kind of while we were planning this, but I wanted to make sure I brought it up. Um, Lisa, you would also mention like the concept on this too is kind of hiding the volume or value in buyer neutrality with OPPS, like meaning... You know, and and maybe, you know, you correct me if I'm characterizing this, but I'm trying to think about it in my own head of you have buyers in a market and you have a buyer who, because of OPPS or referrals or, you know, downstream revenue, as some call it, is able to even, they're able to pay a higher rate, even if it's within a survey range, let's say. But it's possible by taking an approach where you're not buyer neutral, you could hide volume or value within those kind of payments in a way. I mean, is that is that kind of what you were talking about before? Did I characterize
0: that incorrectly? Um, so I know what you're talking about. I think we were talking about that and the concept of losses in fair market value that we're going to get to as well. And I, yep. I'm going to be very clear. We we discussed this and, and folks listening. We are not trying to hide anything. We're trying to be as super transparent as we could. But I think what we meant was it was sort of baked in. The concept, yep. this program integrity concept about you really cannot be valuing things higher when someone can refer to you. You really should not be taking into account the volume and value of a physician's referral in any way that you are going to compensate folks. That is not, I'm trying not, I don't want to say that this is inconsistent in any way with us generally saying these. the big three are three separate principles. And we think that the volume and value test is objective. And are you paying in a way that takes into account the volume and value of referrals? We're not trying to back off on that in any way at all. But I do think this, but particularly the idea of losses, can be this idea of if you make more money, like and we talked about it there, because hospitals can sometimes make more money for the same service that a physician practice can. And we're working on this at CMS with site neutrality, and the, and the Congress is working on this with statutes that change the way we pay. But there is not full site neutrality, obviously. Um, and so, yes, it, it is a... A way to add another program integrity principle here by saying you shouldn't be sharing the wealth just because you make more money than a physician practice. You're not allowed to do that. The valuation should be objective. And this is a, a framework to try to get us to the most objective value fair market valuation possible for services and items and rentals.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's clear. We've 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 covered this one. Um, I want to make sure we can get you know to our others. So I'm going to dive in. We kind of talked about unique factors and survey use. Um, I, I I think this was uh, another one where CMS, and I'll talk about a, a couple of concepts, but CMS kind of specifically says hey, it's not our policy that just looking at a salary survey provides an accurate determination of FMV in all cases. But then CMS goes on to say and saying, well, you know, each compensation arrangement is different, must be evaluated based upon unique factors. And I know CMS had kind of, or did, provided a couple of examples, like a family medicine example, and then an orthopedic surgeon example. And just kind of, I I think maybe to highlight that there's a lot of different factors that come into play, not necessarily just a survey, but um, what were your kind of thoughts on, on this section?
0: I think this is, I know we talked and joked when we were talking about doing this session, and you know, CMS doesn't usually Two sessions on fair market value, and we we were very clear. We're just going to talk about the framework and the policies, and we aren't going to you know express any input as to how you should be doing these things. Just the principles that you should be kind of working within um, from a program integrity perspective and policy perspective, because we're just this isn't what we do. What we did also talk about, jokes about calling this like urban legends, um, these concepts, and this is one. This is one for years and years and years. People would say to us, well. You know, I'm trying to do this deal, and it's we're staying within the seventy fifth percentile, so everything's fine, right? or we you know this is obviously a problem. we've seen and we read complaints, obviously it's part of our job, and we later saying, well, you paid somebody above the ninetieth percentile in this particular survey, so obviously that was above fair market value and the way people were using these ideas as swords um these surveys and these i this concept of 75th percentile below the 25th percentile time productivity necessarily to the maximum you should pay somebody these are not cms policies these are just things that somehow developed over time people thinking they were the bottom line is we interpret the statute the arrangement has to be looked at in its individual Beautiful self nature. <laughs> one is one. You know, everything is different. You, one size does not fit all. Now, maybe it does. You might be able to develop some type of evaluation system. one surveys might be perfect. They might not be for this particular arrangement. The point is, it's not always going to be that it will be fine if you do X. Every arrangement has unique factors. I think one of the other examples we put in. The preamble was, I call it the chest cracker example, but other people would say cardiovascular surgeon. If you have interventional <laughs> cardiologists and no CV surgeon, those cardi- the interventionalists are sitting on their hands. They can't do procedures because no one's there in, in an emergency. On the other hand, so you may have to pay a CV surgeon a lot of money to come to town to be your CV surgeon because they don't want to move. You can't find one. There's a shortage of them, whatever the reason is that might be a different fair market value in that instance and then two years later two more move to town because they like it there and they want to be there now you've got this you know glut of cv surgeons the next one you employ to bring in maybe they don't get as much money there are just all kinds of factors that come into play and we recognize the uniqueness of every arrangement and we want to make sure people aren't feeling bound by surveys They aren't feeling unbound from them altogether either. You just need to look at the unique factors of what you have and what looks on its face. If you knew nothing about a transaction to be a large amount of money and perhaps a lot, a shocking amount of money could possibly be fair market value. Mm -hmm. And what looks to be an okay, fair, you know, average amount of money might be too much for this particular transaction. So that's, we were just trying to break that myth that it is not always the same for everyone.
1: Yeah, Tim, thoughts on the
2: myth? I think that's been crystal clear. And I think that's been great clarity for the industry because it has tended to come down to certain percentiles. Uh, pe- you know, percentiles are just benchmarking against the specific data set. They don't address the fundamental economics of what's going on in that arrangement. And I think this has been a great myth buster for the language that's, that CMS used in the preamble commentary to communicate that clearly to the industry.
1: Yep. Yeah. So, okay. Well, so we've we've got this uh I think we've covered that one. Uh I did have Lisa the actual 75th percentile quote on here. Um I won't <laughs> spend spend too much time on this, but were there requests for like safe harbor, you know, I mean, were there requests for safe harbors related to percentiles then when it came to fair market yes. value?
0: Yes, we did get comments um and we and not just in this rulemaking the rFI and throughout you know the last dozen years of people corresponding and interacting with c m s that could you just confirm for everyone that as long as you stay within the twenty fifth to the seventy fifth percentile or under the seventy fifth percentile or you know at the 50th percentile all kinds all kinds of different requests that it's fine in your fair market value now there was no no request that they say of this particular survey that we promise you is perfect and has good data it's a usable survey they just said 75th percentile (laughs) of any salary survey and so you can imagine why we couldn't do that just because of that piece of it but the 75th is not again i don't think that that doesn't necessarily meet a definition of fair market value for the subject transaction. And as Tim just said, in the economics of that particular transaction. So it was just, we were unable to do that. It's not an appropriate policy to have. And on top of that, it was never our policy that people somehow believe CMS thought 75th percentile or below would be fine no matter what. And we definitely wanted to clarify that we weren't sure why they thought that, but that was not our policy.
1: Well, and and it's interesting because even thinking, you know, we kind of talking about compensation, but thinking outside the context of that, even just rental prices or something, you know, it would be as if somebody says, hey, if, if I've got a survey and the rent that I'm charging is below the 75th, but actually that rent in the local market is much hot, you know, I, I can just see all sorts of issues there, so um, very...
0: Right, very... and if, and especially when you don't define which surveys you're talking about, and it's not, I mean, as much as we are not in the business of creating our market valuation, we are definitely not in the business of deciding which surveys are reliable, and accessible, and appropriate for use, And and anyone who's been doing this long enough, and Tim, of course, has cited to this, we had proposed at one time, to have a safe harbor within the definition of fair market value, and as long as you averaged, you know, four of six available surveys and used the 50th percentile that was fine. Well, by the time we went to even consider the comments on that rule, some of those surveys were no longer available. Some had were behind a paywall, and folks didn't think it was fair that they should have to pay to be able to comply with our regulations. And there are a number of policy reasons why it just does not work. To do that, and so, from a policy making perspective, it's a challenge to do that within a regulation and within this statute that you know, where we are dealing with you know do or die compliance, it is a, a strict liability statute, and to put people in that position is not a good policy choice, so it wasn't a good policy framework anyway, but on top of that, it was an unmanageable one, what people were asking for, and it definitely was not our policy,
1: yeah. Yeah, Tim. Any thoughts on this one? No, I think I think
2: Lisa said it uh, crystal clear. So,
1: uh, <laughs> although for the record, I thought the old
2: Safe Harbor back in in 2004 was or 2004 was pretty good for. I mean, it was limited use, right? It was just a basic hourly rate. Uh, granted, the number of surveys became a problem trying to get access, but I liked the idea. And I I thought some of the industry's complaints about it kind of baffled me. So, for what that's <laughs> worth. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, but I definitely get the barriers. I mean, it's a good point. I mean, there is a lot, uh, a, a lot of issues with that. And especially as we kind of go back to the beginning of there's a framework here, but it's not establishing how uh, I can see that being problematic. Um, okay, so final uh, kind of, you know, topic, Um Is really kind of, and I think I've got here uh, our conversation about ongoing losses and how that ties in. Um, So, uh, this quote relates to all the physician losses issues. And, you know, I I won't read the whole thing, but I, I will read, you know, a portion. Compensating individuals at an ongoing loss may create risk that compensation is not representative of fair market value. So a commenter was asking, should that be included? And it seemed as though the comment was, you know, hey, we agreed that compensation of a physician at an ongoing loss may create or present program integrity concerns. But CMS felt, hey, we didn't need to include it. And if you keep on going, it kind of goes back to, buyer neutrality you know if, if we've got buyer neutrality it shouldn't be you know an issue what are the just thoughts around ongoing losses physician losses and so on
0: so also um not in this quote not in that section right there but in the commercial reasonableness section of the regulation we discussed this quite a bit um as well and the examples that an arrangement itself could still be commercially reasonable even if there is a loss because this issue came up in both contexts, and I think um, we probably should have referred back to that discussion a bit too because I I believe that we did a little bit better of an explanation in that section about why um, an entity might enter into an arrangement where it would not make money, where it would have a loss potentially. There are a number of reasons, other regulatory obligations, like TALA, for example, um, you might. Or the chest cracker example is another good one, uh, <laughs> that you may end up paying a physician a chest cracker, a CV surgeon, in a way that you're not going to make any money off of their professional services. But you have to offer that service to the community. It might be the community you serve, and there's a need in the community for all of these different cardiovascular interventions and abilities. And so there are lots of reasons why you could enter into an arrangement that is commercially reasonable, even though it may still result in a loss. Now, we had comments come up in the fair market value context as well, saying that you know that wouldn't be fair market value either if you did that. And there, yes, there are two different concepts, but it's a big picture of this idea of a loss. And I think that what we're trying to say here is we get, it. there are program integrity restrictions in this framework that we are putting forth when it comes to fair market value, but in the big picture, of why you're in that arrangement and why you are paying that particular compensation that we think these other program integrity requirements will protect the program and its patients, And we need not say, and again, we don't opine on fair market value, that it will always not be fair market value if you're not making money. Because you're right, it goes back to buyer neutrality. If the service is worth if I need a service that I can't even get reimbursed for it, does that make the service have no value? Of course not, the physician still spent time on it. Does that make the item have no value? Of course not, the item has value, objective value. And so just because I can't get reimbursed on it or can't make money on it does not take the value away from the objective, the service that happened or the item that I'm purchasing. And while it might be relevant, it's not something that belongs in a regulation. Yeah. I'm gonna yeah. leave i that one for Tim to comment
2: on. <laughs> Tim, Tim, thoughts? Well, well yeah. But, but let me let me start here. Um I, I think the way I always talk about this, Lisa, and you react to this. And I, I think this is what you said too, because you've got two things that you'll say both both about commercial. When I say you, I mean CMS and the preamble commentary, both at the level of commercial reasonless and fair market value, which is on the one hand you don't have to make money so the idea that that is a singular litmus test for determining if it's fair market value commercial reasonable the answer to this is no on the other hand it's not and i'll use the language you used on the the commercial reasonable side it's not completely irrelevant and i i, I think it seems to me that you've got you've, you've got an issue when it happens that you need to address and look at um as to why it's happening but as i see your commentary lisa it's you're. You, you know you're opposing the extremes either you know losses simply don't matter at all forget about them or losses singularly determine fair market value and commercial reasons is, is that a fair interpretation
0: yes i think that is, is exactly right it's difficult to come up with a policy hard and fast policy for every circumstance and this kind of all goes back right. to the right i think we use the terminology economics of the subject transaction which of course um you know, threw people into a, what does that mean? It's the facts and circumstances. And if you ever hear us talk about anything else in the citizen self-referral law, we always talk about the facts and circumstances of the arrangement. And I think that's the underlying principle of all of this. It's the facts and circumstances of the service you're valuing, the item you're purchasing or the real estate and the arrangement that the parties have. And all of that, is the most important thing we're looking at here. We are looking at the facts and circumstances. And and to have a hard and fast objective rule that happens every time, we can't do it. Right.
2: What one item of clarification would be just in terms of how people think about this at a practical level in their compliance programs, Lisa, would be would be this. Many people might think, well, I've got a really good commercial reasonableness analysis and that I've got a really good fair market value. They don't address the fact that this arrangement loses money. So I can ignore the question of losses, or okay, that would be one approach. Another approach would say, yeah, I, I think I've got really good grounds on these two areas, but I, I I do think because we're losing money, maybe we should go the you know we should go do an analysis to understand our losses and be able to look at why those are happening, given that we think is, is fair market value. Which of those two options in it, you know would you think would be are more consistent with your guidance on uh, on these matters,
0: I think that anyone who is this is my personal opinion, <laughs> that anyone sure. who is an arrangement that has ongoing losses would, at their detriment, assume that's fine just because they had a legitimate business reason to enter into the arrangement, and the valuation shows that objectively, you know that service was worth x or that item was worth x. I think that is something. From a bigger picture to look at and not just because the physician's on referral. We are not the only fraud and abuse law out there. In fact, we're just a silly little payment rule, but there are a lot of other fraud and abuse laws out there that, that affect, that apply to physician referrals and referral relationships. And so to, um, to not take that seriously, to not be looking at that type of arrangement, be very, very comfortable, um, that, that you are in an arrangement that can continue would be foolish. But to that, to saying that, going back to that language you cited, Tim, from the commercial reasonable section, it's not completely irrelevant, but it is not dispositive that an arrangement is not commercially reasonable. And I think we have the same thing here. It's not irrelevant to fair market value, but it's not dispositive that something can't be fair market value because there is a loss. Because again, that goes back to I am a physician practice or I'm a hospital and I'm billing for the same exact service to my payers and one of us is going to make more money than the other. So all of these things, I think, tie together that would hopefully create that set of woven together principles that people understand the policy that we're trying to get at, but not, as you say, not we don't want to interfere with your methodology. Yeah,
1: I think that's fair. Um all right well i know you know we're we're at the end here um i i really appreciate both of you and um, being able to have the conversation here about this i think this was excellent i not that i asked either of you but just any any final thoughts um i don't know tim we can start with you and we can see if lisa has any just any final thoughts on on this, or just the work that Lisa's done on this, or anything?
2: Absolutely. No, I want to say this publicly, and 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 I've said this in some of my webinars. Lisa, I think y'all did a great job. Um, you know, and I like to make jokes about lawyers with calculators and talking lawyers talking about FMV. That's a running joke now at AAPCP, by the way, Lisa. No, but y'all did a real good job. What it what what you you know, as regulators, you listen to the industry. I know you have a task to do. You have a statute you have to follow. You have regulatory rules you have to follow. But you listen to the industry and and you you put a lot of work into this. It was very clear to many of us, even with the proposed regs, even though we didn't like certain things about it, that you would really put some thought into this. And I, I think you've just done a, a smashing job. I'll use some kind of British language here. Just a great job. As, <laughs> you know, just wonderful. Um but seriously, as evaluator, you know, I've, I've written a book and we'll, we'll plug it real quickly because it's an AAPCP uh, AAP publication. It's called The Complete Guide to Fair Market Value under the Stark Regs. And what's unique about it is we traced all the public comments and you can see those comments in full that CMS was responding to. And then there's a whole section that looks at these on, on these topical levels, which is where at least we've gotten some of the terms. But much of what we've talked about here is in the in the book. but After I wrote it, I came to this conclusion of, wow, they did a great job of giving us a definition of value that is clear, and it meets all the the elements that a definition of value should have if you look at the valuation community and some of our professional standards. And I I just think this has just been, um, I I don't give regulations a lot of comments (laughs) as a general matter, (laughs) kind of, uh, but y'all did great, so I'll, I'll leave it at that.
0: I, I do appreciate that on behalf of all of my colleagues at CMS who, who worked on this rule. And there was a huge effort on the MCR rule. And I will hope that, I mean, one of the, one final thought is whenever we are, in this particular school, I should say, in the MCR rule, we were hoping to put out a lot of policies that would provide the guidance necessary for a stable regulatory environment for years to come. And I will say this was the particular area where I think we got it wrong in our proposals. And we appreciated that we received a lot of comments and and Tim from you, Markets as well and and a number of them. But let us know very gently and and civilly and respectfully that maybe we weren't right. (laughs) That we were trying, but that we still didn't get it right. And the best thing we could do was to reorganize our regulations, to make it a little more clear. Let's talk about assets, let's talk about services, let's talk about Mm -hmm. rental of equipment. And to set up a framework with some principles to debunk some of these myths, to address a few issues that had become problematic uh, for folks in trying to operate their businesses in the world of whistleblowers and fear. And once we did that, just to step back. And that was really in this particular area, that is what our focus was. And I hope that we have provided that stability for years to come and that you will never hear from me again on the topic.
1: <laughs> oh well, on that note, and Lisa, we will hear from you again because we're gonna get you to one of our conferences at some point. So <laughs> we'll we'll figure that out. But um I I really appreciate both of you. It was a great conversation today. And um, hopefully, we don't have to chat specifically about this anytime soon. Um, But once again, thank you. And I know the audience will really enjoy it.
0: Thanks for inviting me and and having me today. I appreciate it. And and to also get to speak with Tim, wonderful expert in this area. So I do appreciate it.
1: Yeah. All right. Thank you both.
0: Follow us and subscribe to this podcast for future episodes.